the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. For most of the last year, we've ended the prayer of the day, the collect, with, through Jesus Christ, our liberator. I wonder what we mean when we say, Jesus, our liberator. What do we mean by naming Jesus, our liberator? What are we being liberated from? How are we being liberated? And what are we being liberated into? I want to use those questions to look at this week's readings. But before that, we do that, we need to go back. So, previously on Matt's Deutz Jesus story, Jesus is born in Bethlehem, the city of David, of the line of David, who is king and liberator. His family are forced to flee to Egypt in the face of Herod the Great's paranoia and persecution. Egypt, where God liberated the people from slavery through Moses. And when they returned at Herod the Great's death, his family decided to take no chances, and instead of returning to Bethlehem, they went to a small village in Galilee called Nazareth, where Jesus grows up. Much later, Jesus is baptized by John the baptizer, and as he comes out of the water, he hears a voice that says, This is my son, whom I dearly love. Then, driven out into the wilderness by the Spirit to come to terms with what it means, he is driven out into the wilderness to come to terms with what it means to be the beloved son. After 40 days of prayer and fasting, he was sorely tested by the tester, the Satan, who suggests that the beloved son should have all the wealth and power and comfort that the world could offer. To which Jesus says, Be gone. The beloved son has come to live the kingdom of heaven, and the kingdom of heaven is none of those things. Then Jesus calls some who have been engaging with him, fishermen and others, inviting them to follow, to be liberated, to embrace a new identity, a new way of seeing the world, a new way of understanding themselves, to be his disciples. And after a short while, he gathers them up a hill, overlooking their world, overlooking all that they had known of life, and gesturing at this world, he invites them to imagine another world, a world where the most important people are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for God's justice, the pure in heart, the merciful, the peacemakers, and those who are persecuted for the sake of God's justice. He invites them to be liberated from their known world into the kingdom of heaven, the reign of God. This is a world where all flourish, where the common good is held as paramount, a world where the needs of the poor are placed first, where all are treated with honour and respect and are given what they need to thrive. And then Jesus lives this out, living abundance, 
teaching the abundance of God, feeding vast crowds, eating with the despised, and in doing so, honouring and blessing them, healing, defeating the powers of darkness that possess, that possess people, and churn the seas into violent storms. And then he gathers his disciples again at Caesarea Philippi, a symbol of Rome's power and authority, a city built to honour Caesar Augustus, Prince of Peace, Son of God, a city to glorify and protect the wealth and powerful and the power of the Lord's. In this place, Jesus asks, What do people say about me? And what do you say? And Peter replies, You are the anointed one, the Messiah, the liberator. You are the son of the living God. Which is a little bit treasonous, to be honest. You are the one we hope for every time we gather at Passover, reciting the story of Moses, the one the Lord God of our ancestors first liberated through. We long for this liberation. We long for Moses to return, or at least one like Moses. We long for the God of our ancestors to hear our groans. We trust that you are the one to bring this liberation. And Jesus embraces him and says, I tell you that you are Peter the rock, and I'll build my church on this rock of hope and trust. Nothing will be able to stand against this hope and trust. Not even death. The kingdom of heaven, the reign of God's abundant love that liberates all that brings death is built on hope and trust such as yours. So let's pause at this moment. Pause in the hope and longing in Peter's words. The anticipation of what might be next. The excitement that they will live to see and be part of God's work of liberation. How does that echo our own longing and anticipation in these unusual times? Into that hope and anticipation, Jesus then began to show his disciples that he had to go to Jerusalem. He had to suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, and legal experts, and that he had to be killed, and on the third day, raised. And Peter is having none of it. There is no liberation in Jesus' death. Jesus, liberation comes from you leading like Moses, continuing to show us the way and leading us to overwhelm Rome and their lackeys. To which Jesus quickly replies, to quote Fred Dagg, Ah, uh, you get him behind. Or, get back behind me, Peter. I lead, you follow. Otherwise, you are a stone that could make me stumble. I have already been offered all that in the wilderness. That is the way of this place. Caesarea Philippi and all it stands for. But it is not the way of liberation. It is not the way of the kingdom of heaven. 
Then Jesus said to all his disciples, All who want to come after me must, pay, must say no to themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. You are being invited into the reign of God, where all flourish, where the common good is held as paramount, a world where the needs of the poor are placed first, where all are treated with honour and respect, and given what they need to thrive. This world cannot come through violence. It can only be lived out, and it will be costly. There is no wealth and power for you in this way. You will be mocked and called losers. Let go. Be liberated from all the ways you benefit for how things are today. Let go of those old dreams of security and safety. Let go of those dreams of power and wealth. Be liberated into God's abundance. Be liberated into God's abundance. What do those words mean for us today? So this is my version of what went down, but it is based on the commentaries I've read about these passages, so I'm willing to stand by it. But in light of that, I wonder what we mean by naming Jesus our liberator. And I ask again, what is it that we are being liberated from? And how are we being liberated? And what are we being liberated into? What does this look like? So I want to offer, hopefully, two hopefully quick thoughts about what all this looks like and the first well is linked with the story of what happened at Gate Par. in our reading from Paul's letter to the Romans we heard the passage which is etched into the stained glass window portraying the giving of water to the wounded and dying British soldiers if your enemy thirsts if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he thirsts, give him drink. Peter's letter was written to a divided church in Rome, where members still clung to, the men, to many of the old ways of either being Gentile or Jew, and they couldn't come together for the common good. They needed liberation. And so Paul describes what this liberation looks like. He describes how we might live for the common good. When Māori, when the Ma, and, and Māori at Gate Pā, Pukehinehina, took that very seriously. And so after the, battle, after the battle, one or two or some of those defenders, which may or may not have been Heni Tikiri Karamu and or Wiramu Taratoa, risked their lives to give water to the wounded and dying British soldiers to the very soldiers that they had just fought. As they stood to protect their land, their whenua, their whanau, their way of life and place in Aotearoa. Out of all of that, and after all of that, they had acted out of God's abundant generosity for all. And they had sought to continue to find a way that all could thrive in this land in the hope that they could be liberated again from the way of violence, led once again into the abundant peace of God. The echoes of that battle and that gesture 
continue for us in Tauranga Mana down through to today. And, well, as part of a larger kind of questioning of some of our past, over the last few months we've seen a lot of big news stories about Black Lives Matter marches and protests across the world. And these have once again hit the news in the United States. So when I say Black Lives Matter, some of you will say, but surely, John, all lives matter. And I need to say that, yes, all lives matter, but there are places, too many places, too many situations where black lives don't matter, where only white lives matter. And we saw that this week in America, where a black man was shot, an unarmed black man was shot seven times in the back at point blank range in front of his children, while a young white militiaman who just killed, shot and killed two militiamen, was helped by those same policemen. Well, not the same, but the same police force. In that case, the black life didn't really matter, and the white life was of paramount importance. The truth is, we live in a society that privileges whiteness. My life has been easier because I'm white. Many of us don't want to see that, many of us don't want to hear that, but the statistics reveal that if we're willing to look. We don't want to think about how we benefit from that. That's true here in New Zealand, it's especially true in places like Australia and the United States and probably Britain, but it is true here in New Zealand and it's called institutional racism. And it means that not all are treated with honour and respect. It means that too many in our society are not of it what they need to thrive. And for too many of us, we have too much invested in that way of being, and so we work to preserve it. We are unwilling to be liberated from it. And we saw that this week when the Council voted to create a Māori ward. And the outpouring of rage was expected and yet so sad. What does that decision mean? It means that a Māori voice will be elected onto our council. It's been 28 years since a Māori was last elected on council. I remember her and I remember with sadness when she was voted off at the next election, not because she hadn't done a good job, but because, well, because she was Māori. In the last 28 years, over 90% of our councillors have been white middle-aged men. Women have struggled to get onto our council. And most of those men would have known nothing about Te Ao Māori. They couldn't have named many, if any, of the marae. They wouldn't have been able to name many of the komatua. They wouldn't have been able to talk about what the aspirations of those uh, marae communities are for their communities, for the betterment of their communities, and for the betterment of all of Tauranga Moana. And whether they like it or not, their decisions mostly benefit people like them. We all do that. That's fine. But if we want to have a council that reflects the diversity of our community, then we need to make these kinds of actions. And as I read all those comments, and I didn't read for very long because they just made me angry, to be honest, I wondered what it is that we fear about this decision. What is it that we worry we will lose? What is it exactly that we're giving up by having a Māori at the council table? 
And I was reminded again of that statement of Jesus. All who want to come after me must say to themselves, must say no to themselves, must take up their cross and follow me. What does that passage mean for us in this situation? So I wonder, when we pray through Jesus our liberator, what is it that we need to be liberated from? And what is it we need to be liberated into? Let's just pause for a moment and reflect on those questions. <laughs>